Well, welcome to a podcast about urbanism with zero white men in the room. Welcome to the debut episode of Re-Innovation. If you've been listening to our quick and dirty COVID chats wondering when the tech talk is coming, it has arrived. In every episode, we examine a tool or technology, usually new but sometimes old, and ask, is it effective or is it just sexy? Or neither? Or both? We do that by applying five basic criteria, asking if that tool is, one, effective. Two, scalable. Three, accessible. Four, sustainable. And five, resilient. Before we dive in, though, I want to share a little bit more about who we are and why we're here. Let's start with Ace. Cool. So my name is Andrew Grant Houston, but I'm known by my friends as Ace. I am an architect and urban designer and as well as a housing activist. And so I say that I'm a housing activist because it essentially encompasses all of my free time that is not related to architecture or uh, sometimes being a big foodie. (laughs) Uh, But to give a little more information as to kind of how I ended up in our lovely group. So I grew up in and around San Antonio and... Growing up there in a fairly suburban place, you don't have a lot of opportunity to go anywhere or even just have some fun when you don't have access to a car. And I actually never learned how to drive. So when I went to college at the University of Texas in Austin and was learning more about architecture as well as urban design, I was also in a place where I could finally walk to go out and grab food. I was able to take a bus and go see shows. The contrast could not be more stark. And so from there, really taking that energy and wanting to create more places where people could have access to all the things that are nearby them was something that was really important to me. And so now I live here in Seattle after being a born and raised Texan. Uh, Along with that, I had a quick stint in San Francisco, but we can talk about that a different time. (laughs) But I am all about providing access to people, providing equality, especially living on Capitol Hill, which for anyone who is not familiar with Seattle is the neighborhood. So it's all about culture, identity, and cohesiveness. And so with that, trying to create these spaces where anyone can come as they are and feel like they're welcome. I'll go next. I am Jasmine, I'm Jasmine Smith, and I am an educator, activist, and advocate. And I'm here because I want to take human services, which is the field that I studied in college. And as I've been learning more through the Twitter sphere and beyond, and just like living in Seattle, I want to see how we can make cities better and how we can anticipate and accommodate people's needs and how that ties into services. Um, Even beating people to services by 
creating better uh, cities. And I just love that this is an opportunity to bring various levels of expertise and make it accept accessible to the everyday person. I'm probably the mm -hmm. least experienced of our squad um, being a pretty fresh person onto the urbanism scene. But I do think I do a lot of um, housing advocacy as well. And that's where I've been nine in. And I'm the per kind of person that you uh, talk to about your landlord problems and I go and find out all the code violations or lying about landmark status. So that's where my expertise comes in. Right on. I think that makes it my turn. Uh, I'm Kimberly Kinchin. I am a sometimes writer and editor who spent about a decade as the managing editor of Columbia Ideas at Work, which was a magazine that translated business and economics research into plain language for policymakers and the public. So you can kind of see where I might be interested in this. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> uh, more recently, I spent a couple of years as a business network writer covering the bicycle industry for People for Bikes, which I like to call the actual bike lobby. Uh, <laughs> and I'm currently using my master's degree in journalism, not as a journalist, but as a paralegal at Washington Bike Law here in Seattle, uh, where it's a law firm that represents cyclists and pedestrians who've been injured by drivers. Uh, and I come to urbanism fundamentally from transportation, somewhat like ACE. Uh, I grew up also in a very car-centric, mostly suburban San Diego and I never mm -hmm. had access to a car, so I never got a driver's license. Uh, and that was partly because I was actually kicked out of home while I was still in high school. And so mm -hmm. I was finishing school and I was waitressing to get by and it was a recession. And so for me, the choice was literally pay my rent or pay for all the costs of a car. Uh, mm -hmm. And there was no, yeah, Dang. I mean, and there was no way that I can do both. Uh, so I did manage to get around okay, San Diego's subpar transit system. I did a lot of walking and I caught a lot of rides with friends, um, occasionally walking home from work through creepy suburbs at midnight when I couldn't get a ride home from coworkers and the bus wasn't running anymore. So Oof. let me tell you how much more freedom and security having safe bike routes would have given me. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I digress. Anyway, I've never really been in a position to afford a car. So unless, you know, unless I wanted to sacrifice health insurance or default on my student loans. So over the years... Boy. Yeah. Uh, so over the years, I understandably, I think, gravitated toward urban areas with easy access to transit and work and affordable housing. And you wouldn't know it now, but for a long time, city living was affordable in large part because you could do it without a car. And for me, that mm -hmm. included living in New York City, which I did for about a decade until I left in 2015. Um, and in New York City, there, you know, that was finally a place where I wasn't like a carless freak. And eventually, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I know that. Yeah, feeling. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I got involved with transportation alternatives there and my neighborhood bike group and finding that community of people really helped me validate my personal experience of our transportation system and also helped me to kind of organize my analysis about it from like the United States really violent foreign policy that's dependent on our oil dependency to the toll of traffic violence in communities everywhere and who it impacts. And just from that kind of everyday tax on the human soul that car centric transportation systems extract from almost all of us. So, and so that brings me to say that I think that cars are 
a great example of a tool that's been exalted as a beneficial innovation, but where when we look at the actual vast costs and public resources and in lives, it's probably like the least effective worst tool you could choose to center a transportation system around. Um, and certify basic criteria. Right. <laughs> um, and, and that doesn't mean cars shouldn't exist. It just means they shouldn't be assumed to be the first choice. And so that's probably a lot of where my desire to apply some rigor to how we define what it means for innovation to be effective comes from. And the last mm -hmm. thing that I will say for now is that a good, this is a good place to emphasize that I am definitely inclined to trust experts, but I also want us collectively to make sure that the bigger and the more complex the promises of technology that are presented to us, like, you know, AVs, for instance, which are autonomous, autonomous vehicles. vehicles, the more complex the promises of these technologies, the more rigor the public should expect and receive in the form of, you know, really substantive proof that those promises will be delivered. So that's where I'm coming from and, mm -hmm. and why I am here. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that's part of the reason how we came up with our tagline, is it effective or is it just sexy? Is this something where this new technology that's promising all of these solutions is actually a better solution or is it just something that's new and shiny? Yep. Absolutely. Yep. So yeah, uh, for this episode, uh, which is our very first episode, we are looking at something new and it is the Stay Healthy Streets and kind of old, the neighborhood greenways. So what Stay Healthy Streets are, they are retrofit, uh, retrofitted neighborhood greenways in Seattle that have been specifically looked at during this COVID crisis to shift into spaces where people can walk, bike, roll, and expand beyond the um, sidewalks, which are limited, especially in some of the neighborhoods that it uh, first rolled out in, and just create that space for people first. And so the streets have been closed down with um, street closed signs and are local access only uh, for um, people who live on the street and for deliveries, and they're okay to use them. But then we have uh, the space predominantly for people to use. Yeah, and I think that's one of the pieces of confusion around stay healthy streets in general. So the whole purpose is to provide more space for people to be able to properly physically distance. However, that does not mean that we are completely shutting out cars or other forms of transportation from those spaces. It's more, let's slow down traffic, let's get them to provide more space for people to be able to walk and to be outside in safety while now not endangering each other. Uh, I actually was able to walk with a friend. We physically distanced this past Sunday and it was really nice. It was great. Uh, there was actually another guy who was running and he was able to run by us and have plenty of space to be able to do so because we were not on the sidewalk. And I think one of the amazing things about the Stay Healthy Streets is that they sort of rolled out and expanded in a time where there were questions on, and there was a temporary weekend closure of parks. Mm -hmm. And so there's this whole conversation of, well, a lot of these parks that have been closed are in the most dense areas of the city and where people 
don't have access to backyards. So having the Stay Healthy Streets roll out for uh, communities to be able to you uh, have outdoor exercise space or just keep it moving in a safe space really helps out folks uh, and prevents overcrowding at parks so that we don't have to shut them down. Absolutely. And I think what's notable about what you're talking about is that when it comes to stay healthy streets, this is something that's actually being implemented across the U S if you are listening to this in a major city, most likely either your city is talking about providing stay healthy streets or has already implemented. For example, in New York, I know they have about a hundred miles, which compared to the number of actual miles of car lanes and uh, highways is not that much uh, compared to a city like Oakland, which has provided 74 miles, but that's about 10% of all the existing streets in the city. But specifically to Jasmine, what you were chatting about is there are a lot of cities where there just isn't enough space for people. Mm-hmm. However, European cities normally and typically provide lots of space for people. And, and even then, they are also providing open streets and stay healthy streets mm-hmm. and just doing it in, in many ways a lot better than we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen pop-up bike lanes coming through in London and um, Canada and just, yeah, really amazing ways that streets are being intentionally reclaimed for people. Yeah, and I believe in London that um, the mayor there uh, is actually using this as kind of a launching point to permanently expand people-centered infrastructure on a fairly massive scale and that is something on a smaller scale is happening here and just to give a little bit of background uh seattle so neighborhood greenways were uh first conceived of and implemented in portland oregon probably unsurprisingly uh back in um i was actually i was surprised to learn how long ago the first greenway was built there it was in 1985 30 30 40 So they've been doing it for quite a while, and Portland's neighborhood greenways are pretty robust. They use a lot of diverters, like concrete diverters, to really um, make it very difficult for people to drive to use the neighborhood greenways as cut-throughs, because there's just their physical barriers that don't permit it. And there are very, uh, when they have to cross, when the greenways have to cross major arterials, there are um, either actual stoplights where If you're a cyclist or a person walking that greenway, you can just hit a button and you don't have to wait. You know that the cycle timing is pretty friendly Um, or and they're hardened in some cases. There'll be like a cement barrier so that people even turning traveling from a greenway to the arterial can only turn right off the arterial. They cannot keep or onto the arterial. They cannot keep going straight through the neighborhood street because the presumption is that. If you're coming off a neighborhood street, you must want to go to an arterial. You're not using it as a cut through. So so it's just there's a lot of hardened concrete that Portland has used uh, to really good effect with its greenways. Now, Seattle in 2011 started a very similar program, but the implementation here has been much lighter in that we tend to use only speed bumps, some signage. Mm-hmm. 
and met a far fewer diverters and other hard infrastructure for our neighborhood greenways. So we have a pretty um, extensive network of neighborhood greenways here, but the interventions are not as um, robust. So the way that this ties back into the London example is that this is touching off the Stay Healthy streets, which are overlaid onto many of the neighborhood greenways here. Uh, finally, mm-hmm. the city is saying, oh, we're going to make these Stay Healthy streets permanent, <laughs> which yeah, yeah. I mean, which really um, we'll see how the implementation plays out. But I take that to mean, oh, finally, mm-hmm. we're going to get neighborhood greenways as they were initially intended and modeled after Portland. So I think we might see some more intent, uh, more, uh, more uh, effective versions of neighborhood greenways here in uh seattle uh coming out of this so it's sort of neighborhood greenways beget stay healthy streets begets better neighborhood greenways yep and just for a little more clarity for anyone uh entering this conversation and not in seattle stay healthy streets are our Mm, version mm -hmm. of open streets yep and so open streets is probably the the term that's more being heard in general um but yes, what you were saying is absolutely correct. And it's funny for me, having walked around, because that's essentially what I do when I'm not on transit. It's like, I'm just walking uh, and seeing signs that say neighborhood greenways. And I'm like, okay, so there's a, a little more grass here than on a regular street. And uh, there's a sharrow on the ground. <laughs> cool. <Yeah. laughs> How is this it's, supposed to be safe? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it really, it's really like that. And w- oh, one thing I should say just from personal experience is having ridden the greenway network extensively before they were stay healthy streets even just those signs which are offset they're offset so if you are you know they'll be on the right side at one intersection and then the left side at the next intersection so they're really creating a very informal chicane to uh, discourage drivers from speeding through because the drivers can't travel straight so they have to slow down to to mm-hmm. travel around. So just that uh, temporary signage, I my experience is riding on those streets, it is a much more mellow experience than the old greenways without uh, those temporary diverters with just the, the speed bump treatments and a little bit of signage. So mm-hmm. it does, it is making a difference and I'm just imagining how much better they could be if some of those signs are made uh, are, are turned into uh, the sort of Portland style diverters, which by the way, are pretty attractive. Like if you ride Portland's neighborhood greenways, which I've done somewhat, mm-hmm. they look nice. They, they look nice. They're pleasant places to ride. So, and they do create a little bit more of a park-like feeling than uh, ours, street park feeling almost. Yep. And I cannot end our conversation on other versions of open streets without mentioning Paris, Mm. especially after chatting about Mm. (laughs) London. And part of it is really just because their mayor and Hidalgo can kind of do no wrong when it comes to providing more opportunities and uh, impacts for both pedestrian travel as well as bikes and transit. Um, But particularly in this uh, emergency and pandemic, which as much as I don't want to necessarily call it an opportunity is seeing this as a time to say, okay, all these plans that we had to increase the amount of bike lanes in the city and provide more pedestrian space. Let's just do it now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I will, 
I will chime in to say that here, most of the reception so far seems to have been pretty positive. Um, I did hear kind of through the grapevine that in District 2, there were some concerns about closed streets and seniors not being able to get to community centers. But I, I looked a little bit more into that. And um, the community center that was in about which the concern was expressed, uh, it looks like you can still get into it. It's clo- It's mostly closed right now, but it's available for showers. But you can still mm. get into it using a slightly different than normal route. So I, in this case, it does appear to be just people kind of needing just to adjust and figure out how to go a different way. Uh, <laughs> and then yeah. I'm being inconvenienced. It, it, it does seem a little <laughs> bit like that. And I don't want to dismiss concerns too much out of hand, but it does seem like yes. uh, a lot of the concern is mostly about convenience. I my personally, my concern right now is that at this sort of intermediary between permanence, between stay healthy streets and more permanent versions of greenways, I have seen some really little kids with, you know, of course with their parents on bikes and stuff. And I, I know that driveways and parking lots can be where, even though car speeds are slow, those situations can be sometimes dangerous for really little kids. And my concern would be, you know, how does that work out over time? Um, when I looked at assessments of both Seattle and Portland's programs, I actually didn't find any information about injuries or fatalities. I imagine the DOTs don't want to really draw any attention to them, but without having done an extensive look at it, it doesn't, you know, they're, they're safe places. There aren't a ton of incidents on them. It's probably fine, but I do think that that's something over time. I would hope that the DOT looks at, and I think it's a really good reason Mm -hmm. to have really robust versions of diverters and chicanes and, really hard infrastructure that that does limit how fast people can drive through those areas. Yeah. Yeah. And what I saw on an early article back from April uh, 24th by the urbanist was that uh, Seattle Department of Transportation was reporting that car traffic had shrunk by 90% its normal volume and that by And that was on the stay healthy streets, right? So that's, yeah. Yes, uh, that was on the Central District's uh, 25th Avenue in particular. And did they compare that to the, I think that the traffic volume reductions in general for the, just like broadly across the city were like 50 or 60%. So Mm -hmm. that's fairly significant. And that's my sense just from using those places. You know, I haven't, I don't think I've been on any stay healthy street where I've shared it with a driver. I don't think if I have, I haven't remembered it, which means it was a good experience. So. Yeah. There was one driver that was like pulling away, uh, about to pull away from the curb when I was going in the opposite direction. And they waited for me more than they normally Mm -hmm. would have waited for me. Normally they would have, sped off and tried to beat me mm-hmm. to the bottleneck. Now, now they yep. for me. That's awesome. That's nice. So thoughtful. What's that? So thoughtful. <laughs> oh, it's so hard not to be All sarcastic right. sometimes. Sorry. <laughs> so now that we have run through the quick gamut of 
what exactly a stay healthy street is, it is time to apply our criteria. So, the first one is, is it effective at solving the problem it is supposed to solve? I would say, personally, that I feel like it has been effective and proven by the reduction in traffic volume and just general people usage. You can see how many more people are out in the street skating, rolling, riding their bikes, and um, walking around when they feel more empowered on the street. Yeah, and I, and I think just, I'm going to say that anecdotally, um, it does seem to be a pretty effective intervention. And then also from riding Portland's greenways, which are really, really comfortable and just a really good experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I will say, at least from my experience this past Sunday, along with just overall efforts of trying to walk in other parts of Capitol Hill, Uh, There is a marked difference in terms of comfort when it comes to being around other people, because even around where I am now, there will be other people walking and I will, I definitely feel the difference in my reaction being, okay, I have to be cognizant of that person. I need to get out of their way, but also there might be a car coming by. And so I am freaking (laughs) out (laughs) versus being on a stay healthy street. And of course the overall goal of this is just to provide more space for people to be mm-hmm. physically separated. And so in that sense, it is. Absolutely yeah, that's effective. a really great point. If listeners have tuned into any of the COVID chats, they would know that ACE was self-quarantining for a long time. Well, I guess you still are, but you weren't going outside very much. And I'm very glad nope. to hear that you took a walk and that you're getting out there and that you're able to do that now. Yeah, I'm feeling comfortable enough to at least go outside once mm-hmm. a week, yeah. I would say. I am doing some more running, but I always do that before about 7 yeah. a.m. Yeah. when there are less yeah. people, Yeah, if any. Um, cool. Yep. So let's go to number two, which is scalable and reasonably realistic to implement. So I know from my personal experience, I would say yes. And one of the big reasons for that is just how Mm -hmm. quickly the city has responded and said, this is working. Okay, let's do more. And then, yeah, that's exactly what my notes about this say practically word for word. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I also think that one of the big factors in it being so scalable is the intention and background of taking our neighborhood greenways and improving them. And Mm -hmm. so since we already have streets that have the intention of being slightly traffic calmed by taking the extra steps to improve them, then it's much easier to scale that up, to scale this up across the city and add more and more and more after seeing all the positive returns because uh, we don't have to start from the drawing board and be like, well, which streets will effectively work because we already have ones that we've picked out prior. That's it. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say that, and I think that what also helps with the scalability is that it, because we have already a robust network of the uh, the Seattle Greenways, once we keep adding and keep adding, then they're only going to be better once we have like, full arter- uh, or arteries of 
being able to get across the city with um, Stay Healthy Street. That's a really good point because as easy as um, I do think that neighborhood greenways done the way that Portland has done them where they are using the physical concrete infrastructure. I mean, that, that's a pretty, there's labor cost involved and there's design and planning. They also have some fairly rigorous requirements for um, how much traffic volume already exists and what the um, mm-hmm. common speeds people are doing. So for example, uh, generally you wouldn't put a neighborhood greenway on even a neighborhood street. If you found that more than, I think the, threshold in portland is 2000 cars per day or something uh i'm not sure mm. don't quote me on that but so all of that's already been done like seattle doesn't have robust the robust portland style neighborhood greenways now but all of those that studying has been mostly done so it there is it's a low-hanging mm-hmm. fruit situation um and mm-hmm. and so as easy as i think that neighborhood greenways done right are to implement yes the the uh the retrofitting is even easier in our in our seattle situation mm-hmm. all right so number three is accessible so is this accessible in the broad sense of accessibility I would say this is an area where um, both Stay Healthy Streets and Greenways probably have the most to the most uh, opportunity to do better. The two main reasons I say that are, you know, these streets tend to be on, um, they're almost exclusively on single, in single family home areas. They're not Mm -hmm. on commercial streets or arterials and arterials tend to have more um, multifamily housing and apartments and also tend to have people, you know, people live there tend to be lower income depending of course. And so I think that the equity issue there becomes pretty apparent where if you're not living immediately in a single family um, neighborhood, you're not going to have the more immediate access to uh, that Stay Healthy Street, I mean, I think that there's there are enough of them in many of these cities that you can probably get to one fairly easily, but it's still, you know, there's still an equity question with like, well, this street gets yep. less traffic, which has a lot of health, I mean, public health implications. Okay. So that, I think that that is the, that's a big area that could use addressing. And the other thing that I see is that any kind of range of access for disabled people who have different, you know, different disabilities require different responses. And I don't know that there's been any kind of like vigorous thinking through of what, what kind of responses neighborhood greenways and stay healthy streets could put in effect to make them friendlier for people who have different you know, disabilities. So I think those are the two big areas. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think broadly they are accessible just because they're, they're public spaces, right? They're public spaces that have been made more welcoming for people who are not traveling by car. Yes. And I can speak to that a little bit more. I think expanding the program will be great and will be needed just so that we can provide more access across the city equitably. (laughs) And that goes even back to the idea of both bike lanes as well as parks. I know one of the biggest issues that we always talk about 
in Seattle is who actually has access to green space, how many people live near parks, are able to have a park within uh, a 15-minute walk or bike. Mm -hmm. And I think improving the accessibility overall is important. Uh, Along with that, one of the concerns I've had is tied to safety, and that is on some of these arterials and some of these wider streets, there are less cars. And so other drivers are seem to be encouraged to go pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And even myself as someone who has full uh, ability of my body to, to move around, uh, I still get a little uh, anxious when I see cars just driving by at 30 plus miles an hour. And a number of these stay healthy streets or uh, greenways cross streets like that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes me think of there's like the increase in speeding and then just like dangerous maneuvers. The only scary car incident I've really had since the COVID closure personally is when I was biking in the bike lane on Dexter, a car in the op coming in the opposite direction, pulled a Yui right in front of me oh, into the uh, bike lane. Mm-hmm. And then actually the one of my friends who was riding behind me, um, uh, we were like aghast with our body language. And then he like drove in front of uh, us and cut us off in the bike lane to flip us off. <laughs> it was just like a whole mess. But I also All right. pushed back to... Um, what you were saying, Kimberly, with that, the with the fact that a lot of the greenways are in single-family zoned areas, where one of the concerns that I have on those streets is that there are, especially during the closures, then there are so many parked vehicles, mm. and the visibility is really yeah on a lot of. Streets for me because there's cars in the driveway, cars lining the street, and it's yeah really hard to get a sense of what's upcoming and if there's a car about to pull right into. Yeah, you. and you have an upright bike, don't you? So you can like you have yeah. pretty your visibility is higher than like a little kid or somebody on a road bike. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's rough. I actually just thought of a, an exception to the single family homes situation, which is uh, I saw on Twitter a photograph of 34th Avenue in Jackson Heights, which is one of my old neighborhoods in New York. Mm -hmm. And 34th Avenue is a very busy arterial that cuts through all the old um, ACE. You might be familiar with the garden apartments of Jackson Heights. Uh And the uh, Queens has the least amount of park space per resident of all the five boroughs. And Jackson Heights, the biggest park in in my old neighborhood was Travers Park, which I'm looking at on the map, and it's like two thirds of one city block, which is like less than a tenth of a mile. <laughs> so, um, jeez, that. <laughs> so, and 34th Street, uh, basically the Stay Healthy Street that they've set up there, is starts at Travers Park and then it goes to right to uh, I uh, Interstate 278, which actually that's probably not what it's called, but I haven't been there for a while. Anyway. I, I was so shocked that they actually closed uh, or opened 34th Street as a stay healthy street because it's such a main thoroughfare for cars. So it's like 
they took an arterial and turned it into a stay healthy street on this uh, in this neighborhood full of as many New York neighborhoods are, uh, you know, full of six story apartment buildings. So I think New York is probably mm-hmm. the exception where most of their stay healthy streets uh, are just by default because they're New York City. They're going to be in uh, more dense areas. But it was so um, it was really super heartening to see that and you could see how uh how the neighborhood was just clamoring for more space so yeah yeah that's awesome i would love to see royce street Mm. i mean it turned into a arterialish i know it's designated as like a greenway kind of it's got like a bike lane and he (laughs) <laughs> do you, you want to explain and i think it will parenthetical ex- quote. explain what roy street is and i think it'll be more clear why we're laughing yeah so there's mercer street which is a huge two mile on ramp onto i-5 and then one block uh north of it parallel to it then there's roy street and it's a pretty nice little uh ride um and it's got, it's got some traffic. It's definitely not like a neighborhood street in terms of uh, traffic level, uh, but it's along um, a lot of apartment buildings. It's right near the Seattle Center. Uh, so it's connected to A, lots of people, B, green mm-hmm. space. And actually, if we were to turn Roy Street from Fifth to Kinnear Park, and that would hit like at least three parts, mm. I believe, <laughs> um, in like the vicinity. And so I think wow. that would be great too. But it's already got bike lanes um, on each side of the street that have like a gap too. It's not just like one stripe of paint. It's got, uh, well, there is a section that's Shero's. Um, but for the part that has more traffic, it's got a uh, like three foot ish gap between vehicle traffic and the bike lane so i feel Got comfortable it. on it and i think uh, and actually i walk in the bike lane now and i've really just reclaimed roy as the de facto sh- um stay healthy <laughs> street <at this> point. <laughs> excellent that's great there you go <laughs> So should we move on to our next criteria? Yeah. Is this sustainable environmentally, economically, and socially? I would say absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is for ours in particular, really they're just putting down what little, uh, what do you call that, a tent? Like those metal tents for signs saying that A-frame. the street is... A-frame. There we go. Quick metal A-frames, put them up says stay healthy streets says exactly what it is the website is very clear and understandable just the amount of time and effort that goes into making it happen and maintaining it is so fast that bringing it down if it needs to come down or just letting it continue is fine uh there's also as far as my understanding not a need for police to actually monitor the stay healthy streets it hasn't been a problem where they feel like people are violating this Mm -hmm. we're driving and so 
in my mind, when you talk about sustainability, where no one has mm-hmm. to be monitoring something, that seems mm-hmm. pretty yeah. important. And I think that goes to accessibility too, just in terms of like not giving the police another excuse to be the police, the police. Uh, which is a different, <laughs> pardon, not a different thing, but I think that's something that is. Which for a little quick background for anyone listening, uh, the Seattle department or Seattle police department is still under a federal consent decree. So hopefully that answers any questions you may have yeah. about what we're talking about. You know, returning to this question about sustainability, I think even even the robust versions of greenways in Portland, which do require concrete interventions, you know, over time those don't require a lot of maintenance. They are they are lasting. I think that you can you can see the obvious environmental benefits because they do encourage more people to walk and bike versus taking car trips, mm-hmm. uh, especially when done as yeah. well as Portland has done them. And in the case of stay healthy streets, I think that giving people a way to be social in particular at this time is, you know, it's something that's sort of self-sustaining. It creates a little bit of a social opportunity. It's very different to pass a friend, to see a friend like riding their bike in the other direction than it is to see them when they're driving in their car. I mean, I do see people waving to each other from their cars, but it's just such a different thing. It's so easy to stop and be like, Hey, how's it going? Uh, It's a, Mm -hmm. it's a, the quality of that experience I think is, I think that it does promote a kind of pro-social environment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it works in two ways. Like a, there's a visual bubble. So it kind of releases a little bit of anxiety about, am I standing far enough away from someone? Because if you run into your friend over on the trail, then you, and you're both like straddling your bikes and talking, then you, you've got like a visual reminder that you're being socially distant because frame of the bike and all that. So there's like, that element and also the up uh, it's having the stay healthy streets uh increasing the safety in maybe your neighborhood and also just expanding the um routes uh like the layperson like someone who's not already a bike commuter and expanding they're like oh it's totally doable to bike yeah yes get to and from my uh, like i've gone on bike rides and biked past my friend's place and talked from mm-hmm. their window and all that getting around nice. and i one of the uh links that i'll include in the show notes is about how there's been a cycling explosion um, in the u.s a big bike boom of people yes realizing uh realizing the amazingness of getting around. so much so that um it, in a lot of places it's impossible to find a used bike right now mm-hmm. yeah i believe it awesome. so our next criteria is resilience so yes this is something that is resilient uh will stand the test of time and exist on and on and from the announcement that I want to say it's about 30 miles uh, will become permanent and will not be open to through traffic in the future. Uh, I would say yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that because of the positive um, experiences at, during the initial uh, 
rollout during this crisis and because it's been shifted to um, announce permanence uh, and how that's going to impact the decisions that are made further. I think that, yeah, it's absolutely going to be resilient. Yeah, and I think part of that is kind of um, along the lines of what you, Jasmine, were talking about with the sustainability piece, where when you see people doing it, when you see somebody biking or walking, uh, it encourages, it might encourage more people to do it. And so I think that there's a resilience aspect of that. Um, I also think that if Seattle is successful in implementing some of the kind of more harder concrete-based diverters mm -hmm. and ballers and chicken. We'll say more physically so, resilient. Well, well, I, I, in the broad sense, I think uh, we, sh we should talk about the many aspects of resilience, but, but physical resilience is important partly because, you know, one of the things we, and we haven't talked about this is that, you know, if, if we have a climate crisis looming, then anything, any public resources we put into infrastructure or into technology should be resilient in some way. And it should be a good use yes. of resources. And uh, this is something that uh, over time would be, you know, is probably very low cost, is probably very enduring. If the electricity goes out, the greenways still stand. They're not, in general, uh, maybe some of the crossings might require electricity, but the harder physical infrastructure is still there to, um, to promote uh, safer crossings. And just thinking in terms of having more extreme weather and things like that, um, that's a little bit more variable. But in general, uh, they're pretty durable. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm going to land on like being they're physically resilient uh, as well as socially resilient. Yeah. And I think the only reason I specifically brought that up and made the quick retort is when you are talking about thousand pounds like six thousand pound vehicles mm. going around mm -hmm. and hitting something you want it to be able to be resilient and not just crumble like uh what is it the ballers the uh, or not the uh, they're not the ballers, ballers. They're, um, <laughs> yeah they're flexi yep. flexi poles or i should learn what they're actually called but yes that's good <laughs> enough flex posts they're called flex posts yes flex posts. Uh, yeah because i wanted to say i was walking down Jefferson it was either Jefferson or Yesler or it wasn't walking I was running and I was going for a run and I walked into actually the bike lane because someone was coming up the other way and as I like go into it I look at the flex post and I realize oh hey there are none like there's just the base and it's been like completely trashed and so I'm like cool clearly someone just swerved in here because it was nowhere near a turning like an intersection it was in the middle of yeah, the street. yeah. five five that so. crap find it fix it oh yeah i'll go i'll go i'll walk over Good there and five five that soon <laughs> which they're pretty they're fairly responsive depending anyway yeah i actually have a, a photo oh, so excellent. i can share it later so i am going to conclude on the whole that Stay healthy streets and neighborhood greenways are both effective and sexy. Maybe not sexy to Elon mm -hmm. Musk, but they're sexy to me. <laughs> <laughs> we have a thing like you get five out of five Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm not gonna I'm not personally gonna endorse just because I can't oh, stand God. the dude, but uh, we'll come yeah, up with something yeah. else. It'll be like 
five out of five wheels. <laughs> five out of five roundabouts. Yes, I love it. <laughs> I love it. Five way roundabouts. Oh, that's awesome. Cool. So, uh, in future episodes, so first of all, thanks for listening. Uh, as we wind up this episode, uh, we do want to invite your contributions. Uh, we will be sharing our wish list for innovations that we wish someone would invent. We will also be pillaring some real world innovations that we find kind of absurd. And we would like you to share those with us. Uh, we would also like, if you have an example of your town or city or state doing great work vetting new technology, we would love for you to share that with us as well. Um, and you can do that just by tweeting at us for now. Uh, I am she rides a bike on twitter i am at jazzy's praxis and i am at v t-h-e urban ace all right cool well then that's it for this episode thanks for listening if you like what you hear subscribe on anchor or more platforms to come coming soon